Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, who Ron DeSantis is blaming for his sagging poll numbers. Can anyone take on Donald Trump? A potential rival will join me. Plus, playing politics with the military? One single senator is so determined to make a point about abortion, he's blocking the Pentagon's most senior promotions. And that Republican is here with me in just moments. Also tonight, I have some new reporting inside on Donald Trump's thinking regarding the special counsel's January 6th probe. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, with the window until the first votes are cast in 2024 narrowing and Trump headed to trial, is there still time for a viable alternative to emerge? Ron DeSantis is still number two in the GOP race, but he's trailing Trump by more than 30 points in most polls. So what is the Florida governor's strategy? What is he doing to turn things around? Blaming the media. The media does not want me to be the nominee. I think that's very, very clear. If you look at the people like the corporate media, who are they going after? Pretty clear that the media does not want me to be the candidate. I think that they've uh, tried to create uh, narratives that somehow the race is over. Obviously, Iowa will be critical for any candidate who is hoping to knock Trump out of the number one spot. And Republicans have just moved the caucuses there up to January 15th, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, weeks earlier than it has been in recent elections. But the question is, could a late entrant shake, th- shake things up? Perhaps my first guest tonight, Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia, who joins me now. Governor, thank you for being here for the premiere of the first show. Caitlin, congratulations on this great show. It's great to be with you and have a chance to talk about Virginia. We have a lot of great things going on. You do have a lot going on in Virginia. And you recently went 10 for 10 in the contested primaries in your home state. The candidates that you endorsed all won. Your own election in Virginia was also seen as a playbook for Republicans across the country. When you look at Virginia and you look at 2024, what do you think Republicans need to do nationally to win in 2024? What can they learn from you? Well, I have to look back at what we learned in 2021. First and foremost is we've got to listen to the voters. And I listened to a lot of Virginians about what issues were most important to them. And and I think the same issue set will be presented this year in our 2023 elections, which we have in Virginia. Our whole House, our whole Senate is up. That's what I'm really focused on. And that issue set's really clear. Cost of living's run away from folks, and they're worried about the economy. They're worried about public safety. They're really worried about education. They're worried about behavioral health. I hear it over and over again. And so We focused on that in 2021, and we put together a really common sense platform in order to address these issues. And when I was hired, we went to work and we got a lot done, even with a split legislature, with a House controlled by Republicans and a Senate controlled by Democrats. Common sense prevailed. We cut taxes. We invested a record amount in education, a record amount in law enforcement. We went to work on behavioral health. We've made tremendous strides, and that's why I'm confident this year that the voters will be very pleased with the work that we've done in Virginia. One other thing voters have been concerned about is abortion, though. It is still top of the mind for a lot of voters, including in Virginia and in those elections. 
You have said that you've pushed for a 15-week ban and that it belongs, that it's up to the states. It's a state's issue after Roe versus Wade was overturned. But are federal candidates or candidates running for the 2024 nomination pushing for a federal ban? Are they wrong? Well, let me just begin with uh, where things stand in Virginia. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a pro-life governor. And that's what Virginians elected. I believe in exceptions in the case of rape and incest and when the mother's life is at risk. And, and just three years ago in Virginia, the Democrat-controlled uh, legislature and governor were pushing for abortion to be legal all the way up through and including birth. And Virginians viewed that as way too extreme. And so when Ro- the Roe v. Wade uh, decision came down, Uh, I viewed it as a chance to bring people together, a chance to bring people together around a bill that would uh, protect life at 15 weeks weeks when a baby can feel pain. And I believe this is a place that we can come together. What I hear from Virginians over and over again is that abortion all the way up through and including birth is far too extreme and that they want fewer abortions, not more. And I think we can come together on this topic. And I think it will be something that is discussed extensively during this election in 2023. It will be. But what about a federal ban? Well, I Are don't you think, for that? Yeah, I don't think that, uh, as again, I think that where common sense brings us together is around a, a 15-week bill that protects life when a child can feel pain. And this is a really important moment. There's a chance for us in Virginia to really demonstrate leadership, to bring people together on a topic that has really been a divisive one. And this is why I, I am focused on coming together on a topic that has historically been one that's divided people. Let's unite each other. You talk about coalescing around 15 weeks. Governor DeSantis is someone, a fellow governor of yours, a Republican, who signed a six-week ban in Florida. He is obviously running against Donald Trump for the nomination. He hasn't done as people had predicted he would. He hasn't been as big of a challenge to Trump as people thought he would. Do you think you would be able to be a challenge to Trump? Well, as I've uh, said to folks, because I've been asked this question uh, frequently, uh, one, I'm humbled by it. You know, I'm, I've been at this for 18 months. Um, and gosh, 40 years ago, I was washing dishes and taking out trash in Virginia Beach because I needed a job. Um, but I think what has been demonstrated is that when someone brings common sense to an office like a governor in Virginia, and you get a lot done, uh, and we deliver on promises made, uh, people pay attention. And I'm encouraged by that because I think what folks are seeing in Virginia is that common sense prevails. And when we lower taxes and streamline regulations and invest a record amount in education and stand up for law enforcement and prioritize behavioral health, change can happen and good things come of it. And that's what's encouraging to me. But as I've said to folks, I am focused on 2023. Uh, the entire legislators up this year our House and our Senate. Yeah, I want to hold our House and I want to I want to turn our Senate. And, and I've heard you say that you're humbled by this when people ask you about this. But you also you've never ruled it out. Well, I, I think what is most encouraging is the is the frequency that people are asking because of what's going on in Virginia. And what I've constantly said is and you just said that the Iowa, the Iowa caucus has been pulled forward into January. I'm not in Iowa. I'm not. The, I'm not. Will State you be Fairs. in January? I, I'm going to be in Virginia. And in January, you will not be in Iowa. Well, this is this is where you have to be. And I don't think I'll be in Iowa. I think I'm going to be in Virginia. We're going to we're going to do everything we can to hold our house, flip our Senate and lead. And this is what I was hired to do. And that's what's exciting to me. So are you going to rule it out? Well, again, I'm going to repeat to you one more time. And you've asked this in very creative ways. And I've had it from many folks. And I've said many, many times that I'm focused on Virginia. And this is this is one of these moments where we in Virginia can demonstrate that with common sense, with collaboration, with strong principles. Listen, I, 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 I believe what I believe, and I think I've been very clear that we're going to lower taxes and we're going to streamline regulations. We're going we're to back parents 
We're going to reestablish excellence in education. We're going to fund law enforcement. We're going to fix behavioral health. These are the issues that Virginians have been focused on. And what we've been able to do, Caitlin, is I think deliver. And I'm incredibly humbled by the fact that there's been some focus on what we're doing, and that's that has translated into some national interest. Well, in Virginia, but I've said over and over again, I'm focused on the Commonwealth. Virginia is often also a bellwether for national politics. People have looked at your run. You also did put out a campaign a video not that long ago that a lot of people thought looked like a, a presidential campaign video. But you know, when you talk about what Republicans need to do to win back the White House, you're talking about mirroring what you're doing. Do you think Donald Trump is the best option for Republicans right now? Is he the best your party has to offer? Well, here's what I believe, that we will nominate a, a candidate who, who will win. I believe that it's you time You think whoever for, the Republican candidate is I, will defeat I, I, Biden? I think, we, I think it's time for a Republican leader. I think what's been demonstrated from the Biden White House is that uh, foreign policy weakness and, and a disarray in the economy and, and a lack, full lack of understanding about how all the pieces fit together has resulted in America struggling. Um, inflation is the biggest issue on voters' minds. Crime is the second biggest issue on voters' minds. And third is education. And I see it and hear it every day from Virginians. And there's nothing that's come out of the Biden White House to address these issues, these, these most important kitchen table issues. And so I think this is a great opportunity for common sense, conservative values to be reflected in a candidate um, I'm going to back whoever the candidate is, and I think it's a great chance for Republicans to lead again. Okay, so even if that candidate is Donald Trump, when he was indicted recently in the documents investigation, you posted a tweet saying that the charges were unprecedented. You called it a sad day for the country, and you referred to a two-tier justice system. But now that you've seen the indictment, we've heard Trump in his own words in that audio tape, do you still not think that he should be held accountable for what is being alleged in that indictment? Well, let me back up and, and just be clear that what we've seen happen to the former president um, is inconsistent with what we've seen happen in other circumstances with elected officials. Like which one? And I think this is what folks are concerned about. There's plenty of allegations against the current Biden White House and things that have gone on there. And in Virginia, one of the things that we saw was that parents standing up at school board meetings and demanding transparency and accountability in their children's education was met by the Justice Department of the United States with accusations of being terrorists that was alleged by one of the teachers' unions. I mean, this is the inconsistency that Virginians and I believe Americans see, and it's something that undermines people's trust in the system. But you can have concerns about that, but the allegations against Trump are, are completely different than that. He was the commander-in-chief. They say that he took documents related to national security, our allies' weaknesses, U.S. weaknesses, I mean, he's on this audio tape talking about the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Do you have any issue after you've seen that indictment and heard that audio? Caitlin, I think the I think the big concern from people is the fact that this seems to be a differential treatment than what other elected officials are receiving. And and I repeat it again. You know, one thing about justice is that it should be applied equally. And again, you know, with the, with the home Virginia view. I was stunned that that parents were being pursued by the Justice Department for showing up at school board meetings. Th this doesn't this doesn't comport, and therefore, I do think that this is what causes people to lose trust in our justice system. One more question on this, because you talk about regular people and how they would be treated. If a regular person took home classified documents, as we've seen just happen to a Kansas City woman, they're sentenced to prison. Yeah, and, and again, they're being treated differently. Again, Trump was given a lot of leeway by the Justice Department here to return these know, documents. As, as you continue to press on this topic, let me just be clear. It is the difference in approach 
that happens to different people that causes concern and a lack of faith in the system. As long as people are treated consistently, one elected official and another elected official, then I think that trust is, is actually furthered. And when they're treated differently, it's undermined. Yeah, I just think the Pence situation, the Biden situation, the Trump situation, they're all different in the sense of how they push the documents or return to the documents and how they participated. But, but I, don't, I don't think that, that the American people all see it that way. But is and, that because they're not given the accurate information? I mean, Trump fought a year and a half subpoena from the Justice Department on this. He misled his own attorneys, according to this indictment, and had an aide moving boxes to essentially evade them. Again, what we are learning as the, the, as the curtain is pulled back on a variety of topics is that not all elected officials have been treated the same. And I think this is where people are scratching their heads. Why aren't all elected officials treated the same here? And in the case, again, of Virginia parents or, or the Biden administration, people are asking, that's the basic question. Let me ask you another question about Virginia, because I know mental health in your state and how that's dealt with is really important to you. And we were looking at the numbers on this. Mental Health America ranked your state 48th in the nation this year when it came right. to what kids are dealing with and how they are treated with their issues. Why is your state ranked so low? And what are you doing to change that? Yeah, it's such a, such a great question. It is such a huge problem. First of all, that data is based on 2019 and 2020 comparative data. And so the first thing is that Virginia was ranked near the bottom before the pandemic. And then as you come through the pandemic, it only got worse. And, and our behavioral health system is being overwhelmed. And that's why I made it a top priority to transform it. And we launched this past December a complete transformation of our behavioral health system. Uh, it's called Right Help Right Now so that we can fundamentally build a system that can meet people where they are. It has to extend to children particularly because we have a big gap to close. This is a top priority. You can't have the best state to live, work, and raise a family if you don't have a healthy state. And we have to treat mental health and health health with equal attention. Yeah, it's a really important issue. I know it's important to your administration. Governor Youngkin, thank you for joining us here tonight. Great. Thank you so much. Congratulations again on your show. Thank you. One senator has been holding up military nominees for months. And today, the U.S. Marine Corps right now is without a permanent leader. Senator Tommy Tuberville is here next on The Source. For the first time in 164 years, the U.S. Marine Corps tonight is without a confirmed leader. Senator Tommy Tuberville is blocking all military promotions and has been for four months. He is doing this to protest a Pentagon policy that offers paid time off and reimburses travel to service members who can't get abortions where they are stationed. Earlier today, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said he believes Senator Tuberville's blockade, quote, harms America's national security. We have a sacred duty to do right by those who volunteer to wear the cloth of our nation. Smooth and timely transitions of confirmed leadership are central to the defense of the United States. Tuberville's hardline position has left about 265 high-ranking officers and their families in limbo. By the end of the year, if this is not resolved, the Pentagon says that number could rise to more than 600 and it could include the leaders of the Army, the Navy, and even the Joint Chiefs of Staff chairman. The person who is nominated for that position, General Charles Brown, CQ Brown, met with Senator Tuberville today in his office. We are joined tonight by Senator Tuberville himself. Thank you, Senator, for being here. You know, as we were talking about the historic nature of this, 
The last time the Marine Corps was left without a permanent leader was back in 1859, when Archibald Henderson died at 76 with no successor in place. Do you not think it's important to have a permanent leader in charge of the Marine Corps? Well, first of all, congratulations on your new show. I know Alabama people are proud of you, and War Eagle, by the way. But uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this, is a, this is an interesting situation. You know, you can't work out a problem unless you have conversation. I've had a 10-minute conversation five months ago with anybody from the White House or the Pentagon. Uh, I'm doing it uh, for several reasons, but number one, I'm not stopping anybody from being confirmed. I'm just stopping them from confirming hundreds at a time. They can confirm as many as they want during the day. We're sitting around uh, twiddling our thumbs most of the time during the week and uh, should be confirming people. But uh, that being said, uh, they're delegating and legislating from the White House. That's another reason I'm doing this. People in this country voted for Congress. They want representation, and they changed the law. Uh, Section 1093 of the code, the law says, again, a vote, voted on by President Biden, says that there will be only abortion during the three exceptions. Uh, now, President Biden has changed this. He and the Secretary of Defense. Uh, now, we ran hard for these positions to represent the people of our different states and, and our districts. Uh, we are supposed to be making the law, not the Pentagon and not the White House. So that's one of the reasons, one of the bigger reasons I'm, I've got to hold on these because they need to do it the right way. It might get passed. Write the law up, send it over to Congress, and let's pass this. But you say that they're violating the law, but the Pentagon policy, there's an opinion from the Justice Department that says it doesn't violate the law because they're not actually paying for abortions. They're paying for the travel to get there. This is, I'm quoting from the policy now, it says the non-covered reproductive health care is at the service member's expense. So that would seem to say that they're not violating the law, which is your whole premise for blocking all the nominations. Well, first of all, I wouldn't trust this Department of Justice as far as I could throw them. Uh, but, uh, you know, they look at it different. I look at it as a law. A law is legislated through Congress. Now, this was a law. It was voted on by Joe Biden in 1985, and it passed. And so it's got to be a law. So to change that law, it's got to go back through Congress. But what you're, so, you're referencing the Hyde Amendment, but this is not explicitly paying for abortions. It's paying for the time off and for their services. But regardless, even if you disagree with their, their position on this, their policy, a colonel who is waiting to be promoted to a one-star general has no say over what the Pentagon's policy is. So why are you holding these officers responsible for the actions of political and civilian appointees. When you're in the major- a minority in the Senate, it's the only power that you have to get people's attention, to get them to do it the right way, to go by the Constitution. The only power we have is to put a hold on something. And so we thought that this would get the, uh, the attention of the Secretary of Defense. I told him back in December, now if you do this, I'm gonna put a hold on all your admirals and generals. Uh, I didn't hear from him for two months. He put the, uh, the order through just through a memo instead of a law. He changed it. That's unlawful. To make it law, you've got to go through Congress. And we're trying to teach them that you cannot legislate from the Pentagon. And uh, so it's, it, it's a tough situation. And there's nobody more military than me, Caitlin. Uh, my dad was military, uh, career military. I'm all for the military. We need a strong military, but we also need to go by the rules in the Constitution and represent the people and taxpayers. Taxpayers are not supposed to pay for anything that has to do with abortion. Your father, yeah, your father was in the military, but when you talk about who's hurting here and that you said you were going to do this, you're not directly hurting Secretary Austin or President Biden here. This has a real impact 
on the families of these officers. They can't move or resettle their families. They can't enroll their kids in schools. Their spouses can't take new jobs, you know, wherever they're going to be stationed next. You know, this keeps members of the military who are getting promoted from getting that pay raise. You realize that, right? Well, first of all, it, you know, if I thought it had, had, was hurting readiness or recruiting, I wouldn't be doing this, but it's not doing it. Uh, you know, I've talked to generals and admirals. They said, Coach, we're going to be able to get this done. We'll work through this. Uh, and I appreciate their comments. I talked to uh, General Brown today. I talked to uh, General Smith last week, who's now the deputy, was the deputy of the Marines. Now he's the commandant until confirmed, uh, but he was uh, sworn in today. But you got to think about this. We say we're hurting the families, but don't you think about this. We've done a couple of dozen abortions in the military for the last 40 years, a couple of dozen a year. Now we're, now we're going to have 4,000 to 5,000 a year because this new rule this new supposedly law that this administration is pushing through. So let's think about the unborn. Let's think about the young people that are not going to be able to get in the military and be part of this country. Let's think about them. But where are you getting those numbers from? I'm, we, we had an uh, outside service look into it, calculate it, go through it with the fine-tooth cone, and we sent that to the SECDEF. We sent it to all the people in the White House. They knew this was going to happen. They knew how many more there were going to be. So uh, you got to look at the facts here. You know, facts first. I mean, that's, y'all, that's your is motto. Not, it's not illegal on a national basis. I mean, it's up to the states right now. They get to decide. Alabama, our home state, I, basically I doesn't allow most abortions. But I don't understand the numbers that you're citing there or where those are coming from, saying that that's a jump and that's why you're, you're changing this policy. You said you were changing the policy and that you're holding this block because you don't want the uh, Pentagon paying for travel related to people who have to travel out of state to go get an abortion. Exactly. Uh, taxpayers, 60% of the people in this country, Democrats and Republicans and independents say they do not want taxpayer money to go towards anything to do with an abortion. And so that's all I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get the attention of this Department of Defense and the White House. But saying, you're saying listen to the people. Listen to the people. Senator, I'm just not trying quickly. to hurt anybody. Listen to the people and let's get this thing done. But there has to be conversation to get anything done, by the way. But some clarification, because you are blocking this because mm -hmm. the reason it's in place is that people who are stationed in certain places, if they want to get an abortion, and they happen to be in a state that doesn't offer it because of the new laws that have gone in place since Roe versus Wade were overturned, would have to travel to another state. You're claiming that abortions are going to skyrocket because the Pentagon is paying for people to take off work and have to go out of state to get them? Caitlin, abortion, for three exceptions, is going to abortion at any time. Also, their dependents. I mean, you're adding a lot of people into this. You're adding a lot of a time frame in, into that during, during the pregnancy. That's what I'm talking about. There, there is no set uh, rules on this. It's just, hey, if you want to have one, have it. We'll pay for your flight anywhere to a state that can do it. Uh, we're going to give you three weeks off paid. That doesn't come out of your time off as, 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 uh, as a service member. Uh, there's a lot added to this, and it's going to be charged to the taxpayer. Okay, but they're not paying for the abortion itself, no. the procedure itself. But you did mention military readiness there, and I'm glad you did, because seven former U.S. defense secretaries, including two who served under former President Trump, James Mattis and Mark Esper, disagree with you. And they signed a letter to Senate leaders saying that your actions are harming military readiness, that this risks damaging U.S. national security, and it risks turning military officers into political pawns. And they specifically say that there are some pretty important positions that you were holding up, including 
the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain and the Seventh Fleet in the Pacific, which are critical to checking Iranian and Chinese aggression. Are you saying that you know better than those seven former defense secretaries? Well, first of all, those secretary of defenses were nominees. They weren't elected. I was elected to represent the people of Alabama in this country. Uh, number two, if they want to confirm a, a general or admiral, we can do it tomorrow, okay? I'm not stopping all of them. I mean, if there's some that they want out there, uh, 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 General Brown, who's gonna be the new uh, uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, he'll go through by himself. He's gonna go through confirmation tomorrow and we will vote on him by himself. Uh, he will not be held up. And so this is just throwing 100 or 200 in there and doing it at one time when I'm just saying, hey, this gives me the right because I'm a senator, I can hold any confirmation I want until we get some kind of confirmation of why you're doing this. Get conversation, let's talk. I've heard zero from the White House and zero the last five months other than 10 minutes from uh, Secretary Austin in February. But you've said you're not going to drop your objection here. I mean, what if a, President Biden called you, that wouldn't change your policy. Is that, are you saying it would? Well, that's another thing. Uh, we need leadership in the White House. If I'd have been the president, I'd already called me to the White House and said, Coach, what are you doing? This is why we need to get this done. How do we work it out? We got to come to some compromise. But Caitlin, there's got to be conversation. Nobody has even talked to me in five months. You, I hear that the, uh, the press secretary over there saying, you know, there's been, there's been nothing. That's the biggest lie I've ever heard. If they're really worried about readiness, if they're worried about recruiting, how about we get this done? How about they come talk to me and let's talk this out and work it out and, and come to a good conclusion for the American people, the taxpayers and the citizens of the United States of America. But your own fellow Republicans disagree with you here. Even Mitch McConnell says he does not agree with this tactic. So I guess I'm just confused if there is that conversation with the White House, what do you hope, what would you achieve by talking to them if they stand by this policy, which they put in place, after Roe versus Wade was overturned, and you say you don't like this policy, where's the middle ground there? Well, well, first of all, I don't work for any other senator. I work for the people of Alabama, uh, and they got their own opinion, whether it's Democrat or Republican, independent. Uh, it's my prerogative to put a hold on. But the one thing that I want to do is make sure that the American taxpayer has a say-so in whether we pay for anything to do with abortion. That is what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to stop any confirmations. I'm not trying to be hard-headed about this. I just want some conversation and get a, a reasonable uh, explanation, explanation of why we're doing this. And there's been zero. Well, I just want to repeat, it's members of the military who are paying the price for, for this policy that, that you've chosen to take up. But speaking of the military... I do want to give you a chance to clarify some comments you made recently on white nationalists serving in the military. For those who are watching, if they haven't heard your remarks, this is what you said. Do you believe they should allow white nationalists in the military? Well, they call them that. I call them Americans. Do you want to explain those comments, Senator? Yeah, first of all, uh, I'm totally against any type of racism. Okay, I was a football coach for 40 years, and I dealt uh, and, and had opportunity to be around more minorities than anybody up here on this hill. Uh, but when our military has been attacked, was being attacked after 9/11, after January the 6th, and that was my first day on the Senate floor, I thought it was I thought it was outrageous of what senators from the Democratic side, 
Chuck Schumer sat on the floor that night calling out people, calling people racist, calling people nationalists, white nationalists. White nationalists is just another word that they want to use other than racism. Uh, I'm totally against anything to do with racism. But the thing about being a white nationalist is just a cover word for the Democrats now where they can use it to try to make people mad across the country, identity politics. I'm totally against that. But I'm for the American people. I'm for military. I'm for Christian conservatives, Democrats, whoever wants to be in the, uh, the, the military to fight for this country, to protect this country. That's what it's all about. But just to be clear, you agree that white nationalists should not be serving in the U.S. military. Is that what you're saying? If, if people think that a white nationalist is a racist, I agree with that. I agree they should A white shouldn't. nationalist is someone who believes that the white race is superior to other races. Well, that, that's some people's opinion. Uh, and I don't think, that's I mean, a lot. Uh, pardon? What's your opinion? My opinion of a white nationalist, if somebody wants to call him white nationalist, to me is an American. It's an American. Now, if that white nationalist is a racist, I'm totally against anything that they want to do because I am 110% against racism. But I want somebody that's in our military, that's strong, that believes in this country, that's an American, that will fight along anybody, whether it's a man or woman, black or white, red, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, and, and so I'm a totally against identity politics. I think it's ruining this country, and I think that Democrats ought to be ashamed for how they're doing this because it's dividing this country and it's making this country weaker every day. But that, that's not identity politics. You said a white nationalist is an American. It is identity politics. You said a white nationalist is an American, but a white nationalist is someone who, who believes horrific things. You don't, do you really think that's someone who should be serving in the military? Well, that's just a name that has been given. I mean, it's not. Let, it's listen, a real. It's a real definition. There's real concerns. So if about you're going to do away with most white people in this country out of the military, we got huge problems. It's not. We it's got not, huge problems. It's not people who are white. It's white nationalists that have a few probably you see different the beliefs. Right? That have that have different beliefs. Now, if racism is one of those beliefs, I'm totally against it. I am totally against racism. But, but that there's is, a lot that of people white, that believe in different things. Is racist, Senator? Well, that, that's your opinion. That's it, your opinion. But it's if it's racism, opinion. if it's racism, I'm totally against it. I am totally against any type of race, any, any type of racism. I don't care what it's in. Okay. Senator Tommy Tuberville, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. Coming up, did Congressman George Santos really compare himself to the civil rights icon Rosa Parks? You'll have to hear that one to believe it. That's next. More now on our interview with Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville. We, we plan to talk about something else initially, just to be upfront in this segment, but we'll get to that in a moment, because given the comments that Senator Tuberville just made about white nationalism in the military, some background there. These are comments that he had made recently in an interview where he talked about white nationalists being in the military. And when he was asked about that, he essentially doubled down on those comments. And we just saw clarity from him. He talked about white nationalists being Americans and whether or not they belong in the military. Reaction now tonight with my guests who are here joining me, Scott Jennings, who is the former, well, Ashley Allison first, the former National Coalition's director for the Biden 2020 campaign and the former senior advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell, Scott Jennings, both here with me. We'll get to everything else we were going to talk about in a moment, but what did you make of Senator Toville's comments? Well, he is right that there are white nationalists that live in America. Um, but it doesn't mean that the term and definition of white nationalist is not a racist. 
This is why it is so important that we teach an accurate history in our country, that we explain to children that are coming up the history of our country. There are, we, we have a torn and tattered and sad history in our country. It doesn't mean, though, that I'm not a proud American, but we must be honest about the truth. And what um, Senator Tuberville is doing is trying to conflate two things to say, but if you're an American, well, what does it mean to be American? America needs to live up to its greatest ideals, and we need to acknowledge that, that we have a racist past towards Black people and Native American and Asian American and Latinos, and yet we can still become the greatest country or, and may become... And, sustain being the greatest country, but we have to be honest about where we come from. And we can't do it when we have people like Senator Tubbleville who won't acknowledge the truth about even the definition of what a white nationalist is. Scott, what'd you make of those comments? Well, I, look, it's, it's possible to, I mean, multiple things can be true. You can be an American, you could be in the military, you could also have abhorrent views. Um, and just because you're an American or you're or serving in the military uh, doesn't make you worthy of praise if you have, I think, some of the views that maybe he's trying to defend. It's, it's a strange hill to die on. Mm-hmm. And it's the one thing about politics that I, I sometimes marvel at is the hills that people are willing to, to die on. And, and this whole idea of defending the term white nationalist, he did it back in May, I think, uh, before. And so to, to, to hear him still on that, I don't, I don't quite know what he gains out of it, truthfully. Right. And it was essentially offering him a chance to clarify those remarks, because I think when he was first making them, he was saying, well, it's a term Democrats are using to describe all MAGA Republicans as members of Trump's base are referred to. But obviously, all of MAGA Republicans are are not white nationalists. White nationalists are a separate entity in and of their self. And I think the question was like whether or not they belong in the U.S. military. Well, Mm -hmm. he's he has he's not wrong about that. I mean, there have been people I mean, back in the 16 and 20 elections. I mean, there were people who were arguing that if you vote Republican or you vote for Donald Trump, you therefore are racist. That's absolutely false. And he and he uh, uh, he's right about that. But the, the defense of that term and the defense of what that stands for in our culture, not but great. That wasn't really the, the point he seemed to be making. We have let's let's listen to Tupperville in his own words. It's not, it's, got not, huge it's not people who are white, it's white nationalists. That have a few probably different beliefs. Right? That have that have different beliefs. Now, if racism is one of those beliefs, I'm totally against it. I am totally against racism. But, but that there's is, a lot that of is people a white, that believe in different things. Is racist, Senator. I mean, you have to believe in truth and lies at some point. And what he didn't want to do is acknowledge what the definition of a white nationalist is. And a white nationalist is someone who thinks that they are better than other races, including black people, brown people, uh, Asian Americans. And so he, he, he just doesn't want to live in this honesty era that our country needs to return to. And I, I mean, I hear you, Scott. There, are, there was a lot of name calling on both sides in the last eight years or so of politics. But a lot of the name calling was based in truth and some of the name calling was based in lies. And what when people call someone a white nationalist because they believe in racist policies, many of which Donald Trump and some which of Tommy uh, um, Senator Tuberville believes in, we have to be able to call it out. You know, when you think that a race is inferior to another one, which a white nationalist does, if you can't acknowledge that one thing, then I think we have a problem in our politics and in the debate in general. Well, I, I agree with you, uh, but I, I would challenge you to tell me what Republican policies are racist or based on racist ideologies. Because I I do think this conflation happens on the left all the time. If a Republican believes X, 
they therefore are racist. Or if you vote for a politician that I think is racist, you then become racist. Republicans hate this. But that wasn't they the distinction it. that no. he was making. I think that was, I think that's, you can debate that, but that wasn't the distinction he seemed to be making there on, on saying, if they're racist, I disagree with them. But not saying, you know, saying if a white nationalist is an American and uh, talking about people who serve in the military. Uh, separately, uh, let's talk about George Santos. This is what we were initially going to talk about. Um, he is obviously the embattled Republican congressman. He has pleaded not guilty to 13 counts of fraud, money laundering and theft of public funds. Tonight, he is facing criticism for a different reason altogether, comparing himself to the civil rights icon Rosa Parks. He was on a podcast earlier responding to criticism that he got from a fellow Republican specifically Senator Mitt Romney, when he said this. Mitt Romney, the man goes to the State of the Union of the United States wearing a Ukraine lapel pin, tells me, a Latino gay man, that I shouldn't sit in the front, that I should be in the back. Well, guess what? Rosa Parks didn't sit in the back, and neither am I going to sit in the back. That's just the reality of how it works. I'll start, I'll pick up where I started, is this is why teaching our history in completion and in comprehension Fairness and accuracy is so important. George Santos and Rosa Parks are not the same thing. People, George Santos doesn't even deserve to be sitting in the chamber right now because he is a liar and he fabricated his whole identity to his constituents. Rosa Parks was an icon who stood up against racism, who said we are all created equal against white nationalists, and they are not the same. And it's disgusting. And I, I just hope he goes away. His constituents deserve better. And his criticism, what he was trying to criticize Mitt Romney because Senator Romney came up to him once in the chamber. We saw them speaking to each other and essentially said something along the lines of, you don't belong here, I think in much colorful, more, more colorful language. Right. But the fact that that was his response to criticism that he's getting from members of his own party. Yeah, well, he doesn't belong there. Mitt Romney was right, and he lied about who he was to get there. And he's now got massive criminal problems in his own life. My advice, George, resign. Deal with your own problems and uh, straighten your life out. You're not doing yourself any favors. You're certainly not doing the Republican Party any favors. Ashley Allison, Scott Jennings, thank you for being here on our first night for uh, an interesting segment yes. to respond to that. <laughs> Ahead, we just got word that Rudy Giuliani is trying to cut a deal with whom? The latest, next, plus I have new reporting on Trump's mindset regarding the special counsel's investigation on January 6th. New tonight, we have just learned that Rudy Giuliani is trying to cut a deal in a lawsuit that was brought by two Georgia election workers. This is significant because of the mountain of other issues that Trump's former attorney is dealing with right now, fending off two disbarment proceedings, and also sources telling me tonight that the legal cost of everything Giuliani is facing is adding up. Joining me now is Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Agnifilo. She is a former chief assistant district attorney at Manhattan District Attorney's Office, so thank you for being here. So Rudy Giuliani is essentially trying to cut a deal or cut an agreement with the attorneys of these two Georgia election workers. I think everyone would remember them from their January 6th testimony. It was so compelling. I mean, what do you make of just not the fact that he's only he's trying to cut a deal there? He's also facing these potential what looks like it's going to be a disbarment of his law license and also 
he's sitting down with Jack Smith's team in that investigation. I mean, there's a lot going on with Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, I think the walls are closing in on him. He's got so many legal problems, and including criminal, potential criminal charges with Jack Smith. Looks like he's absolutely in the crosshairs there. And he's got the civil issue with Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, and he's losing his law license. I mean, literally all the walls, the walls are closing in on him. So I think it makes sense that he's trying to settle this because this was a defamation claim against him. If you remember, he was one of the ringleaders who was saying uh, that they were taking the suitcases and, you know, the votes and all of that and, and said some pretty negative things about them. And, and they testified, as you said, very powerfully about the impact that had on their life. Yeah. And he was ordered to pay, I believe it's about $90,000 in their attorney's fees separately with Jack Smith. I've heard from people that, that Trump has kind of been talking nonstop about the January 6th investigation. Obviously, he's we're waiting to see when the trial is going to be in the documents investigation. But he's been talking about the January 6th investigation a lot. He's talking about Jack Smith uh, a lot. I think, you know, Sometimes Trump says so many things that people ignore some of the more outrageous ones. But on Jack Smith specifically, if you look at his social media, he's been calling him deranged, likening him to a crackhead, saying he's a sleazebag. I mean, this is just a sampling of the post. How does that factor into the fact that he is awaiting a trial that is being prosecuted by Jack Smith? That's Donald Trump's playbook, right? He goes after either the judges or the prosecutors or anyone who he feels is going after him. But, you know, Jack Smith in particular, he's beyond reproach. You know, I've worked with him. Many lawyers have worked with him. He's he's really a down-the-middle, above-board public servant. And for him to say things that like he's a crackhead is really not only offensive, it's it's outrageous, and it's just absolutely not true. He's, he's really... Um, a very well-respected person. And, but, you know, it's, it's like anyone who's, who's trapped in a corner, right? What else can he do other than try to bully, intimidate, or name-call? But does he face any consequences from that, potentially from the judge? Potentially, yeah, absolutely. I mean, right now... Uh, it's it's complicated because uh, really nobody's Jack Smith isn't asking for anything from a judge. And, you know, prosecutors are used to kind of you put your head down, you do your job and you, you sort of don't pay attention to that sort of thing. But, you know, Donald Trump's words have had actions before. Right. You know, we saw what happened on January 6th with the insurrection and et cetera. So, you know, he, he kind of walks up to a line. If he crosses over a line, absolutely, he will he will be uh, admonished by a judge at a minimum. Yeah, we'll see what they say. Karen Agnifilo, thank you for joining us on this with your legal expertise. Thanks for having me. Much more on the Trump investigations is coming up tonight on CNN Primetime at 10 o'clock. Laura Coates is going to speak to a key witness in the January 6th investigation, so make sure you stay tuned for that. Also, the years-long feud between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk is getting public and personal. They are running rival social networks now, claiming they both want a cage match And now Musk is taking aim at Zuckerberg's manhood. Yes, you heard that right. We'll talk about the Battle of the Billionaires next. The ongoing battle between two tech billionaires hit a new low today. Elon Musk is now calling for a literal measuring contest after Mark Zuckerberg announced that his rival app to Twitter, Threads, already has 100 million users. That is just five days after it launched. My colleagues, Donnie O'Sullivan and Audie Cornish are here tonight. Obviously, um, things have escalated in this situation. I saw this tweet from Elon Musk last night, and I kind of had to double-check to make sure it was real. I mean, Audie, these are two of 
two incredibly smart people. Really? Two incredibly, well, they're <laughs> believed to be smart people, rich people. I mean, what do you make of the fact that this has gotten to this low? We're not all the way there yet, to be clear. It's going to get worse. Yeah, I'm hoping they'll take it to space. Um, do you have re actual reporting on this that you can share? Uh, you know, we, that's, that's for later. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I think that they're like, they're fighting for some kind of supremacy, basically. Mm. Um, wrong night for that. But I think they are trying basically to... Um, be the fronts of these companies, right? And we're in this moment where, uh, due to the manosphere, et cetera, it's kind of a thing to show how, what a tough guy you are. And I think Elon Musk has always been on the front of this. But at the end of the day, the business is suffering and the business is what matters. Yeah, his business, well, and that's that's where this has all come out because like Zuckerberg wasn't tweeting before threads. They hadn't tweeted in, what, a decade? And mm -hmm. then he posted the Spider-Man meme. Uh, you have new reporting, though, because I, I think this has kind of put Mark Zuckerberg in this glossy haze of a light yes for a change yeah, yeah. Uh, so threads i think we're all on us we you know we I, I i speak for myself i love it i think it's great i mean i think it says a lot of just how bad a job elon musk has done with twitter that people are embracing a meta facebook zuckerberg product um and look as you mentioned 100 million users on the platform just in five days and it's uh, not even in the eu exactly it's not even officially launched in, in the european union um but that did raise some questions that which we asked uh, uh to meta over the past few days which is you know they They've launched essentially this brand new global platform. What resources are they putting into it, particularly as we have not only elections here in the US next year, but many elections around the world. And they essentially were not able to answer our questions in terms of what additional resources, whether it's moderators or people monitoring the platform for foreign interference, for election disinformation. Uh, and in fact, what we've learned uh, from people inside the company is that the company has been making cuts to uh, their teams that are uh, fighting uh, election disinformation. So you have not only cuts happening across Meta, which wasn't always in the best, um, wasn't always great at this in the first place, uh, to now launching this new platform. Uh, it really just kind of paints a, a not great picture for 2024. Yeah, and I mean, that goes back to the 2016 campaign. I mean, Audi, what does it say if they can answer questions about that, which is obviously important, and Twitter is where Twitter is today. I mean, what does that say? Because this does matter when it comes to elections and information and what people believe. One thing that's clear, both of these companies have had plenty of time and plenty of experience dealing with the problems that have come with disinformation, that have come with having poor guardrails for young people and the fact that they don't really have a plan, that it is as messy as it is right now, is pretty surprising. Audie Cornish, Donio Sullivan, thank you both. Congrats on your new show. Thank you, and thanks for being here for the first episode. Also, thank you for joining us. CNN Primetime with Laura Coates starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.